Well, I'd like to give you all a warm welcome on this beautiful morning, at least here in Berrien Springs. The sun is shining and the dew is glistening on the grass, and it is a privilege and a pleasure to awake into God's mercy, to awake into a world where the oxygen is fresh, the grass is green, and uh, even while I've been asleep last night, God has been providing for life this morning when I got up this morning. We serve a gracious Heavenly Father, and uh, it's my privilege to share with you today the final of our journey through the Beatitudes in Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we've looked so far at the overall structure of the Beatitudes in Luke 6 and Matthew 5. Uh, we've worked our way through the Beatitudes one by one, and today we're going to be looking at the last two Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses uh, 10, 11, and 12. And uh, as we open our Bibles, I'd invite you to bow your heads with me, whether, whether you're at home, online, or whether you're here in the congregation, and we'll ask for God's blessing. So shall we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the way that you lead us through life. And Father, I thank you that in these Beatitudes, we finally come to where Jesus himself is personally mentioned. I thank you, Father, that the promise is that Jesus is with us in the midst of the most terrible difficulties we may go through. And so, Father, today in our troubled world, I pray that Jesus will be present in our lives in a very personal and a real and a meaningful way today. And Father, I ask that your Spirit will speak to our hearts, that you'll soften our minds, you'll remake our hearts, you'll guide our feet, and you'll change the way we live as a result of going through these Beatitudes and following Jesus in the path he's laid out for us. Thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer. In the name of Jesus, I ask. Amen. So the, these two Beatitudes at the end of Matthew 5 uh, you see the first one up here. They have to deal with persecution. And today I'm going to be talking about the topic of persecution. This is not an easy topic to talk about, um, but I know that uh, in different parts of the world today, persecution is very real. And so this is a very painful topic for many people. Uh, many uh, people that I've been a privilege of being a pastor for, they've arrived in the United States or they've arrived in England from countries where they experienced very real persecution. And so uh, I'm going to be talking today about what is a sensitive topic. Um, there are many people in our pews who've come through extreme persecution, and they come and sit in our pews. And if we don't ask them to tell their stories, to let them share what has happened to them, uh, they carry a lot of pain and suffering within their hearts. And this beatitude of Jesus, um, it speaks to those who have gone through persecution and to those who have yet to go through persecution. And so the first of these Beatitudes says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just as the first Beatitude starts out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who have open hands before God, who know that they need the grace of God to receive salvation, who have no sense of self-sufficiency. So at the close of the Beatitudes, there is the promise that those who make it through persecution, they will also receive the kingdom of heaven. Then the next beatitude that we're going to focus on is this. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And this is the only time that Jesus is mentioned within the beatitudes here in the midst of the final beatitude on my account. And then it says, for your reward is great in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Up until this point, all of these Beatitudes can be explained in Old Testament terms. We've already seen repeatedly that Jesus is drawing the Beatitudes, essentially summaries of kingdom living from the Psalms, particularly Psalm 23 and Psalm 24. 
But now for the first time in the Beatitudes, we find Jesus. And in this passage here, the phrase, on my account, it tells us that what Jesus is interested in is our personal loyalty to him. God is not so much interested in, in me uh, looking for persecution for the sake of being persecuted, but God understands that his children may go through persecution because of their personal connection with Jesus Christ, because I choose to follow Jesus Christ, and because the world hated Jesus Christ, and because the world crucified Jesus Christ, therefore, as his follower, in solidarity with him, I understand that one day persecution is going to come my way. Now, Jesus was not just executed by the Romans because of what he taught. He was also executed because of the fact that he lived out his teachings. And at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the wise are those who put his teachings into practice. And the early followers of Jesus, if you look in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, they were not persecuted so much because of their inner convictions. They were persecuted because they put the teachings of Jesus into practice. If you look in Matthew 5 and uh, verse 10, uh, it says, Blessed are you those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The early church was persecuted because they stood up for righteousness within their society. Matthew 5, 11, uh, on my account, they were persecuted because they proclaimed Jesus as the risen Lord uh, in Jerusalem to the rulers who just crucified Jesus. And Matthew 5, 12, they lived the same way that Jesus did. The early church in Acts chapter 2 through 5 shows a body of believers, a community in which social and gender and economic barriers were being torn down systematically, and men and women were able to live in harmony with one another. And as a result of this, they faced social ostracism, exclusion from the synagogue, uh, floggings, imprisonment, stoning, execution, crucifixion, enslavement, the breakup of their families, the loss of their homes and their businesses. And yet to his persecuted followers... Jesus promises at the end of this, of this gospel that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. No matter where you are, no matter the persecution you may face, there is the promise that I will be with you to the end of the age. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus discusses the reality of persecution in some detail. Um, Matthew chap Matthew's gospel actually has five sermons in it. And those sermons are broken up by stories of miracles. Matthew chapter 10 is one of those sermons that Jesus gives in, in the five sermons he gives in Matthew's gospel. And if you want a great exercise today, maybe go through the gospel of Matthew and identify the five sermons within the gospel of Matthew. Well, here in this particular sermon in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus discusses what it means for his followers to go through persecution. Matthew 10, verse 19, let's read that. It says, when they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say uh, will be given to you at that time. Jesus promised to speak for his disciples at the crucial moment. We are not to worry about what we are to say, but Jesus promises to speak for his disciples. Persecution in verse 21, it says there, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. So the first kind of persecution that Jesus talks about will come within our own families. The second kind of persecution that Jesus talks about is in verse 17, where it says, beware of them for they will hand you over to councils and to flog you in their synagogues. So as the first kind of persecution was within our family, in verse 17, persecution will take place within the family of faith. 
that is within the Jewish synagogues where the early believers were initially congregating. And then in verse 18, you'll be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. In Matthew 5, in this verse 18, that we, we go beyond the biological family, we go beyond the community of faith, and now persecution be expected from the world at large, those who do not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And our response to the rejection and persecution of the world around us will determine our relationship with God. Just look further down in this chapter 10, verse 32. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny them before my Father in heaven. Jesus is very clear about this, that if we are to deny Jesus in times of persecution, then we have no part in the kingdom of heaven. But if we stand true to our faith and we stand true to our fidelity to Jesus, when he says, on my account, then we have the promise that Jesus will stand by us and we have the promise of eternal life. So, if we ask ourselves for a moment, what is the reality of persecution today? Is there persecution? Is it happening in our world? It may not seem like it if you're living in a relatively, um, relative, relatively free Western country, but the reality today is that persecution is increasing all around the world. I see this in my role with Adventist Frontier Missions on a daily basis. Uh, just, just, I was just sharing with my colleagues as we came out today, um, there has been no Adventist church in Syria for the last 50 years. And because of this COVID, we've been preparing sermons in Arabic, and now there is, for the first time in 50 years, a congregation meeting in Syria. We praise the Lord for that, but they have to meet in secret for fear of persecution. They're afraid of al-Nusra, they're afraid of al-Qaeda, they're afraid of the Alawites, they're afraid of multiple armed groups who they know would kill them if they know that these young people have accepted Jesus Christ. So two great sources of information on the persecuted church, you see them there on the screen, persecution.com, that was established by um, the Voice of the Martyrs, who was founded by Dr. Pastor Richard Wurmbrand, who spent years in um, the Romanian concentration camps of the Ceausescu regime in the 60s and 70s. And then Open Doors USA, um, that's another an evangelical group that tracks the numbers of people who are killed for their faith around the world on a daily basis. Persecution happens today for a variety of reasons. Some governments persecute because the claims of Jesus are higher than the claims of the civil state. And when you have a secular state such as North Korea, they do not want the claims of Jesus to have a higher place in the hearts of their citizens than the claims of the state itself. So you find that kind of persecution in communist or authoritarian regimes. Sometimes you have persecution because Christians are a minority and there's a dominant religious group that has no interest in seeing Christians survive. I'm not gonna mention any world religions by name here, uh, but we can imagine what I'm talking about here. The UN Declaration on Human Rights, Article 18, guarantees freedom of religion to all citizens on earth. It says there that everyone has the right of freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, and this right includes religion to change his religion or belief. Now, there are parts of the world today where you have ID cards issued by the government, and you can be born, and on the ID card it says Christian, and if you want to, you can change that to, let's say, another faith, but the dominant faith institutionally says through the government, you cannot change from the dominant faith to Christianity on your um, ID cards. This happens in different parts of the world today. And so persecution is a reality. And what does persecution look like in practice? Persecution today involves verbal har harassment, 
hostile feelings, attitudes, and actions. It involves Christians in areas with severe religious restrictions paying a very heavy price for their faith. Persecution today involves, in June 2020, beatings, physical torture, confinement, isolation, rape, uh, severe economic punishments, imprisonment, indentured labor, discrimination in employment and education, the government refusing to employ Christians because they are Christians, and extreme violence perpetrated on Christian communities. If we open our eyes, we as Christians in the West, we are so suffocated with the froth of meaningless entertainment that we're often blind to the reality that on a weekly basis, entire Christian villages are being torched and their inhabitants hacked to death in some parts of West Africa. Uh, I, I've been in those parts of the world. I've seen those results for myself. It is real, and it's happening on a weekly basis. But as Western Christians, we're almost blind to the reality of the persecution that's happening around our world today. Persecution is not an abstract concept. It means young Christian girls being kidnapped and forced into marriages with older men against their will. It means that whole communities being burned alive by groups like Boko Haram. It means exclusion from jobs and, and educational opportunities in some parts of Southeast Asia. It means being beheaded along the beaches of Libya for your faith by ISIS. It means no access to Christian literature, to Christian churches, to Christian internet, radio, or TV. Um, of, uh, no Christian media or literature for those living under certain religious rules. It means willful self-censorship self in America for those who would otherwise suggest that a straight reading of certain religious texts indicate that some religions are not religions of peace, but they are religions of violent repercussions and, and uh, anger. And so we speak very carefully when we speak about persecution because what we say in America and what goes out on the internet can have consequences for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world tomorrow when a mob might come and burn down their church because of what we might say here in America today. This is a reality in our world today. And so we speak carefully about these matters. Who is our enemy? Our enemy is not a human being. Uh, we are blessed as Adventists with incredible insights into the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Our enemy is real. He is literal. He is personal. He is a malevolent fallen angel known as Satan, who has fallen from the glories of heaven, who engages relentless war against Jesus Christ through primarily attacking his children. Um, every missionary knows that Satan will attack your ministry through attacking the bodies of your children. Every missionary family, when they sign up to serve with AFM, we have to point out to them that your children will be hurt, your children will suffer, your children will face demonization, your children may face sexual or physical assault in the mission field. This is how Satan will try to drive you as a family from the mission field. People will take pain in their own bodies, but please don't harm my children. And Satan attacks Christ through attacking his children today. Satan is described in the Scriptures alternately as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the prince of this world, the god of this world, the prince of demons, the hinderer, the accuser, the liar and father of lies, an angel of light, the tempter, a roaring lion. And in the words of Jesus in John 8:44, he is a murderer. But despite these fearsome titles, the good news is that Satan is a defeated enemy. He, he goes around with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He knows what the prophecies say. He knows that one day he will be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven to earth when the apostles ministered in divine strength and cast out demons in Luke 10. And Jesus has promised us in John 16:33 that same victory over Satan today. 
The Apostle Paul experienced his victory in his own life, and he wrote about it to the church in Romans 8:28. And the Apostle John promised us that Satan will finally be destroyed, Revelation 20 and verse 10, at which I say, hallelujah, or in a more frank moment, burn, baby, burn. Satan is powerful, he is cruel, and he is evil, but we are not to be afraid because the Apostle Paul says, thanks be to God, he has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is Paul talking about there? He's talking about victory over death, that death has lost its sting. The ultimate curse of Satan has been broken, and Christ has given us the victory, and we praise God for that. So how does Satan attack the church? Satan attacks the church um, externally through at least five different means. He attacks the church through civic rulers persecuting the church. In, in the time of Jesus, Pontius Pilate was a civic ruler, and he attacked the church. In our own era, uh, Kim Jong-un, North Korea, Ceausescu in, in, in Romania, the, the Castro regime in Cuba, um, other communist countries that still exist today are still persecuting the church. Satan also attacks the church through religious leaders. It was the Jewish priestly class who had Jesus Christ crucified, and today there are many clerics of different religions who will whip up mobs to burn down Christian homes and businesses and to destroy their inhabitants. Satan attacked the early church through business leaders. A classic example of there is the silversmiths of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, persecuting the church. And we now have in America, modern-day equivalents include pro-LGBTQ corporations, businesses such as PayPal, Apple, the NBA, and airlines such as United and American who are imposing their social agenda on society as a whole. We also see that Satan attacks the church through mobs, through literally mobs running through the streets. This happened repeatedly in the book of Acts, such as the mob of Thessalonica of Acts 17 and verse 5. And those mobs happen today. They happen literally in the streets of the subcontinent, um, places like Pakistan and Bangladesh. They also happen in the West with online mobs. You try and speak up for a biblical concept of gender or sexuality or marriage, and I'll tell you from personal experience, the hate mail you will receive is very painful. There are these online mobs, they're just as active as physical mobs in the streets. And Satan attacks us through our families. Rejection by a family member goes all the way back to Abel's murder by Cain. Jeremiah's own family tried to murder him in Jeremiah 12, 6. Jesus' own family thought that he was crazy and wanted to take and lock him up in Matthew 10, 35 through 36. And many converts today face extreme persecution within their own families. I know of many cases of women who've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they keep a, a picture of Jesus hidden somewhere in their property, terrified that their husbands will find out. For if their husbands do find out, they may be summarily di divorced on the spot, they lose access to their home, to their children forevermore, and they'll be forced out on the streets. There are brave women around our world today following Jesus in secret in fear of their husbands. Satan also attacks the church internally. He attacks us through pride, through self-exaltation. He attacks us through true guilt. And there's a difference between true guilt and false guilt. Um, a a true guilt, I'm not sure how that came up there. True guilt is when Satan accuses us in our own hearts of our sins and our mistakes. And one reason this, this strategy of Satan is so effective is because we know it's partially true. We are indeed sinners, and there is much that Satan can accuse us of. And when he accuses us, we know in our hearts that those accusations are true. And what he says to us is, this is what you did. How could God forgive such a sinner as you? How can you sit in the pew dress nicely on Sabbath to Sabbath when this is happening in your life. And he attacks us with, with true guilt, 
And these are often cherished sins that we have yet to confess. When the Holy Spirit speaks to us, he says, Conrad, there is a sin in your life. Why don't you repent? And God will offer you forgiveness. Turn aside from this. When a voice says to you in your heart, Conrad, there is this sin in your life. God could never love you because the the depth of this sin, that is not the Holy Spirit speaking. That is Satan speaking to your heart. Satan also attacks through false guilt. False guilt is when he accuses you of things or he brings to your remembrance uh, sins that you've already confessed to your Heavenly Father. You receive the gift of forgiveness by faith. And, uh, and Satan brings these things up. And in those cases, the best Christian response is to quote, to quote the promises of forgiveness in Scripture. That, no, I have confessed this. First John 1 John 1.9 is a great example. That he will, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will cleanse us of our unrighteousness. And so Satan attacks us through fear. Um, if men suffer from pride... In my experience as a pastor, maybe the dominant uh, emotion that women tend to suffer from is fear. Fear of loss, fear from being alone, fear of abandonment, fear of how they're going to be protected in a time of chaos. And fear is, is, a, is a very powerful motivating force. It's not often articulated, but it is a, it is an art, a very powerful force. And Jesus has a lot to say about this in Luke 12, through, uh, 4 through 5. The enemy can only harm our, harm our bodies but he can't hurt our eternal destiny. And so Jesus commanded us to set our priorities straight and speaking to those who are filled with fear. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And really the other way that Satan attacks the church, particularly the Western church, is through materialism. And we think that being blessed financially, we think if I have a lot of money, a lot of possessions, and God has blessed me, well, maybe that is the case. The challenge with material wealth is it is easy to forget God in the midst of our wealth. A Romanian church leader in the late 70s who lived through Ceausescu's persecution had this to say. He said, in my experience, 95% of the believers who face the test of external persecution will pass the test. But 95% of those who face the test of prosperity will fail the test. Like fire, money is a good servant, but a destructive master. Materialism is a seductive power, and it will cause people to do almost anything. The hearts of the wealthy are often hardened to the needs of the poor. Mammon is a power that seeks to dominate us. It is an insatiable God, and by God's grace, it must be overcome." This is why returning a faithful tithe and giving sacrificially is not just um, a gift of gratitude to God, it is an antidote to materialism in our lives. And so I'd encourage you, if you are struggling with materialism, if for no other reason, return a faithful tithe because you will experience the antidote to the the draw of materialism in our lives. So we may ask ourselves uh, today, um, do we see this kind of persecution arising, say, in America? Well, I just want to reflect for a few minutes on what's happened in the last three months during this pandemic. Um, Would persecution come to America? Could persecution come to America? Well, I would suggest this morning that as we look at what has happened around us, all of the ingredients are now in place for persecution for God's end-time people. What are some of those ingredients? Well, this is what has happened. This is what we've seen literally in America in the last three months with no acts coming out of Congress, with no executive orders requiring this from the presidency. What we have seen is a corrupt national media from whom truth has departed, pushing a narrative and agenda whereby our civil liberties, constitutional rights, and religious freedoms are indefinitely suspended during states of emergency at a state level. We have seen social media giants restrict and deplatform any voices that question the dominant narrative. 
We've seen dissenters to the dominant narrative being demonized by the media and by online mobs and are ascribed the worst possible motives by national political leaders. We've seen gatherings for worship and evangelism have been banned in the interests of public safety, and deputies have been sent by local mayors to fine those gathered for worship services, again unconstitutionally. Hotlines have been established in different states, and Americans have been encouraged to report on their neighbors if they're suspected of failing to comply with the dominant narrative. So-called track and trace apps are being developed, and they will be used to monitor the entire physical location of the population, again in the interest of public health and safety, giving the authorities unprecedented intrusion into your privacy. We, help, we all have smart tools, Siri, Alexa, Amazon's Echo Dot, and Google's Nest Mini. They are now used in millions of homes and phones across the United States, and they have the ability to record every word that you speak. And it's my conviction that they are listening to you, not that somebody's listening like what's Conrad saying today, but if you start saying to your, if you have a spouse, you start saying, I'm thinking of buying a lawn garden tractor. You say that for about two days, and suddenly on your social media, adverts for lawn garden tractors will start filling your entry. Okay? Somebody's listening. We know that because you start talking about these things, and the ads start appearing on your Facebook feed. State attorney generals have arbitrarily revoked business licenses and business registrations, denying individuals, and this has shades of Revelation 13, the ability to buy, sell, or operate a bank account. We have also seen international travel brought to a shuddering halt at the stroke of a pen. Almost all U.S. colleges and churches have been ordered shut indefinitely in the interests of public safety, and truth is often declared as hate speech and is driven from the public square. Let us not think that the ingredients for end-time persecution are not already in place. It does not require an act of Congress. This is happening at a state level and with local mayors. What could it look like for Adventists in the final end-time persecution? Well, based on what we've seen, with no extra acts of Congress, this is, what, this is what we may be facing for being true to Jesus Christ. Our civil and religious liberties will be revoked indefinitely. The First Amendment freedoms, freedom of speech and freedom of religion will be meaningless. We will see the closure, literal closure, of all Adventist church buildings, all Adventist colleges, conferences, unions, divisions, and Adventist entities gone. We will, we will not be able to gather together for worship, for prayer, or for evangelism. The, the proclamation of the gospel will now be declared as hate speech. We will be deplatformed on social media and cancelled in modern popular cancel culture. Our ability to buy, sell, bank, and travel will be suspended indefinitely for all time. My mother and father live in England. I cannot get to see them. Uh, my treasurer, who I work with, his mother lives in, in Croatia. Uh, she's recovering from serious surgery. He cannot get to see her. Um, we have people who are stranded on different sides of the world. Indefinitely, we cannot connect with our relatives. Our savings, our IRAs, investment accounts will be frozen, gone forever, never to be used again. Unable to pay our mortgages or, or our rents, we'll be forced from our homes, and our possessions will be gone. We'll be demonized across the political spectrum and across all social media. As Jesus says in Mark 13, you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. Just as the, the, the parable, the, the um, Beatitude says, when you face persecution on my account. We will be hounded by mobs in the street and by state bureaucrats drunk on the absolute powers that the emergency declarations give them. Track and trace apps on our phones will trace our every movement and our smart devices will record every word we ever utter. The only thing that remains is a political excuse to turn these ingredients of persecution on God's faithful people. 
We have already seen the ingredients in action. This is not some dystopian nightmare I'm describing. This is reality of America 2020. The ingredients for persecution are already there. It does not require an act of Congress. All it requires is an emergency, and our civil liberties and our religious liberties are gone just like that. So how do we anticipate How do we respond to those? uh, I need to move on very quickly here. How do we respond to those experiencing persecution? Well, Hebrews 13 and verse 3 says this. Do not remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. I want to challenge us today. Educate yourself about religious liberty. Join your local religious liberty team. This is perhaps the ministry for the age in which we are living today. Secondly, slow down and recognize their suffering. Job chapter 2, 12 through 13, we alluded to this passage uh, two days ago. When they saw him from from a distance, that is the friends of Job, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was indeed very great. Sitting in silence with somebody letting them tell their story, not denying or questioning the truth of what they're saying. This is a powerful therapeutic mechanism for ministering to someone who's just come out of persecution. We have refugee Adventists here in the state of Michigan. They come from parts of Southeast Asia. They're often hidden, but if you go and visit them in their homes or invite them to your home and say, tell me your story, you will hear stories of heroism that maybe you've never heard before. People who've endured years in camps or prisons, indefinitely in prisons in other parts of the world, and they sit humbly in your, in your room, and they're not filled with anger, but they're filled with gratitude to God that they made it out of the persecution with their faith intact. The third thing we can do is to speak up on behalf of the voiceless. Give justice to the weak and the orphan, maintain the rights of the lowly and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked, speak out for those who cannot speak for all the rights of the destitute. We are not called by God to be a comfortable middle-class church. We are not called by God to assume that because things are okay with me, that means everything is okay with everybody else. We worship God according to our conscience, that is the first commandment, and in turn, God calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Thus, we cannot talk about freedom of conscience and religious liberty and be silent while single parents struggle to survive day to day, while the victims of human trafficking and brutality and economic inequality and environmental degradation and family breakdown sit in silence and suffering in the pews next to us. We are called to speak up for those who cannot speak. And the fourthly in Scripture, we are called to offer practical support and comfort. If one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Many years ago, I was the Secretary Treasurer of the Middle East Union, covering the Middle East, uh, legal and financial issues. And uh, I, I loved my work, but the thing that stands out in my memory was one day a young lady came to church uh, in the city where I was, and uh, she was covered with bruises around her neck and her upper chest, and she wouldn't say anything. And she came for a few weeks, and eventually we figured out that she was a victim of human trafficking. And she was allowed to come to church on a Sabbath morning, but then she was put back to work Sabbath afternoon. And so uh, we decided, what are we going to do about this? And so we asked her for a copy of her passport, which she gave us. And um, then we said to her, we have bought you a ticket to your homeland. Your parents will be meeting, with you, meeting waiting for you on that, uh, when you arrive in your homeland. 
If you want to get out, we will drive up outside the brothel where you're being forced to work. You literally walk out the front door into the car. We'll take you to the airport with a police escort. And that's exactly what happened. That young lady made her way home. That is what it means to offer practical support and comfort. It was kind of terrifying because she was, we were taking her from the grips of the mafia, but we sent her back to her family. And in my mind, that was the single best thing I did while I was the secretary treasurer of the Middle East Union. We are not to turn a blind eye to those caught up in the midst of suffering. I have a daughter, and if my daughter were ever caught up in that living hell, I'd ask you to do the same for her as well. So how do we prepare for persecution ourselves? Well, Adventist eschatology tends to focus on the sequencing of timelines and roadmaps to the second coming. We talk about things like the closing of probation, the sealing of the saints, Jacob's time of trouble, and the time of the end, T-O-T-E, and the end of time, E-O-T, as the theologians call it. Two of the most common statements that we hear relating to persecution are this. Number one, persecution will never happen here. And number two, we never thought that persecution would happen here. Now, those are the two most common statements you hear relating to persecution. And yet the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, you see it on the screen there. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in our affliction, so that we, that is the persecuted church, may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. What Paul is saying here is that the free church... And here in America, we still consider ourselves part of the free church. We are, we are called to learn the lessons from the persecuted church of what it means to go through persecution. We are called to listen deeply and respectfully and to learn from Christians who are going through or have gone through persecution so that we can be ready for it ourselves. The free church needs to learn from the persecuted church. We cannot just pretend that because we live in the free church that the persecuted church does not exist or they have nothing of value to offer us. We may think that we may send them money to help them out, but more importantly, they can share spiritual truths to help us out to prepare for when we face persecution. So how do we prepare for persecution? Well, intellectually, I know that I will experience persecution. Spiritually, am I ready for persecution? And pastorally, have I prepared my congregation and my family for when I am gone? One of our workers in AFM comes from Southeast Asia. Her father disappeared into a communist prison cell indefinitely in the 70s, and he was there for many years, and one day he reappeared at home. The family had to continue for years not knowing where their husband and father was. This is the reality of persecution. We know we're going to experience persecution, are we ready for that persecution? Now, have we prepared our families and our children and our congregations for the times when we may be out of circulation? So there are some biblical responses to persecution that we can, we can see in the Scripture, and we're going to derive these from it from stories that we find in the Bible. The first of these are the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who who spitefully use you. Repeatedly, we hear of conversion stories of persecutors of the church who are so impressed by the demeanor of the persecuted disciples that the persecutors themselves are converted. The most famous example in history is the Apostle Paul. He was a Jewish jihadi killing Christians. And yet, when Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus, it says, it hurts you to kick against the goads, which means, Paul, even while you're killing Christians, the Holy Spirit is working on your heart. This is a common testimony from many former jihadis and, and persecutors of the church even today. 
we can flee. It is a biblical response to persecution to flee. We flee when it is clearly the will of God, such as Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt when instructed by an angel to do so to avoid the slaughter of the babes of Bethlehem. Jesus also commanded his followers to flee from one town to the next if they were persecuted. We have much of our wealth tied in material goods. Maybe we should be starting to think about how can we have portable wealth rather than material wealth. There are some people groups in history who restore their wealth in things like diamonds because they know they will face persecution. They go from one country to another and still maintain their wealth. When our wealth is tied up in physical property, it becomes a god to us. And and like Lot's wife, we're looking back all the time. We're reluctant to leave it behind and willing to compromise to keep our material wealth. Another biblical response to persecution is to stay and endure it. This was modeled for us by Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22. Another biblical response is to hide, literally to physically hide. Rahab hid the two spies. Many modern-day Christians are forced to either hide or to hide others during times of persecution. Uh, Back in the mid-90s, I was in Tajikistan. There was a civil war between communists and jihadis, and uh, one of the jihadi leaders wanted to kill Westerners. There were about 100 Westerners in the country at the time. And so what did I do? I was a target. They were hunting Westerners. They caught four or five Westerners. They were all brutally killed, including one lady I worked with. They blew her up with a grenade. So what was I to do? Well, I hid. I hid with an elderly man for three months. I didn't go out of that house for three months. He was a dear old saint in the Lord. He'd survived communism. He'd survived the jihadis. He'd survived a lot of life thrown at him. And he hid me for three months until that jihadi leader was killed. And then we could reemerge to safety again. We can boldly remain as the salt and light of the world. This teaching of Jesus in Matthew comes immediately after the Beatitude on persecution. In most of our Bibles, we come to the end of the Beatitudes, then there's a break, and then it says something like, salt of the earth, yes? But if you you take out the, 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 the paragraph break, Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted on my account, and the next thing he says is, you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth which means that in in context, we shine for Jesus the brightest in times of persecution. We are a preserving influence for Jesus the most when we stay and shine for him in response to persecution because salt preserves and light dispels, and when Christians flee, their preserving and enlightening influence disappears from society. We affirm a nonviolent response. You can see some of the, the, the text there on the screen for you. Our time is almost up here, and sometimes we are called to lay down our life, This indeed is a legitimate response to persecution, and a special crown is reserved for those indeed who lay down their life for their faith, Revelation 2 and verse 10. We can exercise our legal rights. The Apostle Paul um, regularly exercises legal rights as a Roman citizen to uh, enable him to survive whatever persecution was coming his way. We We are not to be surprised. The Apostle Peter counsels us not to be surprised that we face persecution in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. We are commanded to rejoice in our sufferings and in all things. Why? Because God is allowing us to go through it. And if God allows us to go through a trouble, he will not be, he will not be slow in giving us a means to escape that trouble as well. First Peter 4.13 and Philippians 4.4. We're to pray with thankfulness. We are to pray in all situations, according to Philippians 4.6, including in times of persecution. We are, to be, we are to refuse to be ashamed for our faith. We're not to hide but we are to stand tall and boldly for our Heavenly Father. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. We are to trust in God's abiding presence, Romans 8, 31 through 39. Nothing will separate us from God 
and his personal love for each one of us. So I want to conclude, we have some questions here. In what areas of my life am I consciously building on the teachings of Jesus? We've gone through the Beatitudes Monday through Friday this week. I want to challenge you. The wise build their lives on the teachings of Jesus. Do not just hear these talks about the Beatitudes, but seek to live them by the grace of God. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in how you can put these Beatitudes into practice. Secondly, how are we responding today to the reality of persecution of Christians worldwide? I would encourage you to check out um, persecution.com and opendoorsusa.org where you can learn more about the reality of persecution and become involved in your local religious liberty ministry. I truly believe this is a ministry for our era today. Are we ready for persecution ourselves? This involves cutting away the gods of this world. We cannot serve both God and mammon, as Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount. In Stalin's concentration camps, the guards had a trick for ensuring the compliance of their prisoners. They knew in the early 1950s that if you gave a prisoner one personal item, maybe a comb or a toothbrush, the fear of losing that one item was enough to guarantee compliance from the prisoner through their 10 or 15 year prison sentence. Can you imagine the holds that one material possession has on a human being? It's time for us to disassociate ourselves and to turn away from the gods of this world, the material gods that we all have around us, because if we are not careful, those gods will snare us and we will turn back as did Lot's wife. And what promise or invitation is there from God for us in these Beatitudes? Jesus is calling us to live as he lived, not just to hear the words of the Beatitudes, but to put them into practice. He's calling us to be merciful, to be peacemakers, to be pure in heart, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And in this passage here, he's calling us to stand true for him personally whenever we face persecution. And some of the last words Jesus ever spoke to us are found in the book of Revelation. There are some promises there to those who overcome the persecution that they face. I want to conclude this uh, discussion this week with you on talking about the Beatitudes with a promise of Jesus to those who overcome in the face of persecution. This is what Jesus says. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. To that I say, amen. To him who overcomes, he shall not be a hurt by the second death. I lost my cousin to cancer a few years ago. She was in her early 30s. She's faced the first death, but by God's grace, she will overcome the second death. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. A new name represents a new character. I look forward to seeing what miracle God does for me in the heavens made new. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. I look forward to the day when I'm entrusted with the saints of God, with the dominion of Jesus Christ, the dominion of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. The saints of God will be trusted with an eternal dominion because we have tasted and seen that God truly is good. We know what mercy and forgiveness really tastes like. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will, blot, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before my angels. I will confess Jesus today before whatever um, tribunal I may behold, an employment tribunal, a legal tribunal, because I know that in so doing I have the promise that Jesus confesses my name in heaven above. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. 
And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. A beautiful promise that we will be pillars of God throughout eternity. (coughs) And finally, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's a beautiful promise to those who endure whatever persecution this world has to offer. Immediately after concluding the Beatitudes, and I think we have 30 seconds left here, so I'm going to take those 30 seconds. Um, I'm a legalist when it comes to our time allocation. Immediately after talking about the Beatitudes, and immediately after talking about persecution, Jesus says, the next words he says are, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. It's my prayer that This is not Jesus' hope for us tomorrow. This is his description of who we are today. Blessed, said Jesus, are those who are persecuted for my sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let us live the teachings of Jesus. Let us put them into practice. And one day when Jesus comes again, we'll hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we close this session in prayer. Oh, Father God, I thank you for these teachings of Jesus. Lord, I thank you that whether we live in Africa, Asia, Europe, or the Americas, that these teachings apply to each one of us, that none of us can say that we are beyond the reach of these simple words with profound meanings. Father, as we come to the end of time and the world is looking for a manifestation of the glory of God, I ask that our lives will be transformed, that we will live these Beatitudes, we will express them in our daily lives, and that people will see that we are representatives of Jesus Christ himself. I pray, Father, that in that time of persecution, as and when it comes knocking on our door, that we will also find that Jesus is knocking on our door and that he will walk through us through the flames as surely as he walked with the three Hebrews through their fiery furnace. So, Father, dismiss us now with your blessing. In the name of Jesus, I ask. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.